I'm Strolls, and I'm a happy alcoholic. Hi, everybody. I want to take this opportunity to thank Jack and the committee for having me over here to Arkansas. It's uh, it's different. I never spoke under the big top before. I, as I get along with my story, you'll understand why. But my mama would really turn over in her grave if she could see me speaking at a tent meeting. I tell you. That'd be the happiest that woman's ever been in her life, I'll tell you that. But, the, uh, I've already had my AA meeting for the day. You know, just to show you how AA works, of course, I'm, what, 600 miles from home, and I'm sharing my story, which I have to do to be able to stay sober, and I've got enough people that love me to sit here and listen to it, and, uh, I hadn't met any of you until today couple I uh, had seen, but other than that, all new friends, and, and I go home and I feel like I know every one of you, and I do, and I've got a, lot, a whole new family to come to, and when I got off the plane today, there's two lovely AA ladies standing there, and uh, we got in the car and we had an AA meeting, first time I ever attended an all-woman's meeting, all the way four and a half hours, and uh, <laughs> so I can tell you this. I'm glad to be able to talk tonight because I've been a good listener all day, I'll tell you. I, uh, I got a lot of things wrong with me and I, you know, I was kind of, I'm not only an alcoholic, but I'm a hillbilly. Now, I come from the mountains of Virginia, way back up in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. I was a, I was a depression baby. I was the only son of a hillbilly school teacher. And they named me Sterling Fletcher Watts the Third. So I, you know, I probably didn't have a chance from the get go, you know. And and uh, I always had a, you know, I never knew who I was. I had an identity problem. I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. The first, uh, see, Mama taught school for forty years, and everybody knew her. She taught three generations. So the first nineteen years of my life, I was Miss Kitty's little boy, and uh. When I was 19, I went across the river and I married this prominent farmer's daughter. And overnight, I became Mac Jackson's son-in-law. And, uh, and I, and I moved down to South Carolina to get my fame and fortune. I had one son and he was a fine football player. All state, shrine bowl, uh, went on and played at Clemson and later played a little bit in the pros. And when I got down there, I became Waldo's daddy. Now, and I, so you all can see that when I got in here and I could stand up in front of you all and say, I'm Sterling Watts, alcoholic, man, I thought I'd arrived, you know. <laughs> finally, finally know who I am. Well, you know, this program has got a way of putting that alcoholic ego down if you allow it to get away with you. And I, it's necessary for me to stop right here and tell you how I got here. Now, I know a lot of people over here in Arkansas, and I've met some people from Indiana and Illinois, and seem to be drunks everywhere, and I understand a lot of y'all just came up and knocked on the door and said, hey, I've been out drinking a little bit too long, uh, a little sick, a little tired, and I want to come in and work this program of recovery. Well, I didn't come here that way. I had a lot of help. I had help from state troopers and judges and bosses, and but most of all, I had help from Al-Anon, see? Now, in fact, in fact, I say I got here, I came to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous when I became powerless over Al-Anon, you see? 
You see, Nancy got to Al-Anon much like Joyce did long before I got in AA. And uh, I tell you that because the first time they ever asked you to read, do y'all remember? Well, I'm telling you, they asked me this night. I'd been sober long enough to quit the shaking and the jerking, and they asked me to read how it works. Never felt so good. I went back in the restroom and practiced up. I didn't want to miss a word. And I'm sitting there on the front row, and the chairman said, and to read how it works, and he forgot my name and said, Nancy's husband, you know. <laughs> and I don't know whether I'll ever make it or not, but the main thing is, you know, that as long as I know what I am, as long as I remember that I'm an alcoholic, things go pretty good on a daily basis now. Now, in this childhood of mine, you know, I was kind of a weird kid. I, I was telling them today that everybody wonders. I got to thinking we hear so much about hyper kids, and they, they, do, they don't let them have sugar, and they give them special treatment, and they got medicine for them now. And I got to wondering what they did with hyper kids back up in the mountain when I was a kid, and I figured it out to beat the hell out of us. That's what they did. <laughs> but anyway... In this, in this childhood of mine, my mama wanted me to be a Methodist preacher worse than anything in the world. And my daddy wanted me to be a lawyer. And I had one sister and she just wanted me to go away. And, and I wanted to be like R.L. Talbert. Now R.L. Talbert was a little fella that could whip me standing flat-footed anytime he wanted to. And secondly, I know now his daddy was an alcoholic and his mama had left home. And he lived there with his daddy. His daddy was drunk and they didn't care when he came home. He'd stay out all night, two or three nights a week. And I used to pray that daddy'd get drunk and mama'd leave home, you know, because he had a much better life than I had. And, and, and I, none of these things are happening that they want to happen for me. And I can remember getting out on a stump out there in the woods and I'd, Preach a great sermon, and I can imagine Miss Kitty sitting right there on the front just smiling, you know. I'd get on that same stump, and I'd be a great trial lawyer. And I could see Daddy over in the jury box, and he was real happy, you know. And none of these things are happening, and uh, R.L. Talbert just keeps whipping me. And so, but, but, and, and nothing is going on. I had these other traits that I realized I was just a, I was just waiting for a drink, I think, because I was a con man from a little kid. I can remember I loved to con people. And I thought fast on my feet. I could lie and, and, and tell us, tell her, uh, get out of something just in a second. Some of the things I remember that happened, for instance, I can remember that in this real Christian home I was raised in, we had to memorize a Bible verse and recite it before each meal on Sunday or we didn't get to eat. Now, I was capable of memorizing Bible verses, but I took great pleasure in making up the scriptures. And, 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 and one of the verses that I made up, I remember, was if a man goeth on a long journey and returneth not, he stayeth a long while. You know. Now, now you know, it's bad enough to be making up the scriptures, but what I dearly loved was to see the old folks thumbing through that Bible. 
trying to find what that little tyke had found. They didn't know where it was, see. And a little example about this thinking fast on my feet. When I was about, oh, I don't know, nine or ten. See, every time a church door was open, Miss Kitty went and she took me. And she, this particular summer, we had a thing, I guess we called it Bible school. And, and she taught this Bible school in the summer. And this particular summer, oh, we must have been nine, ten. We learned to pray. Spent a whole two or three weeks learning to pray in public, you know. And so for graduation, we were to all stand in front of the congregation and give this three-minute prayer as a graduation exercise. Now, Miss Kitty wrote a prayer down and gave it to me because being her son, I had to lead this deal, see. Well, she knew I wouldn't memorize a prayer. Prepare one. She wrote it down for me. Went to church next Sunday, and it's an old country church. And we sat down, and I rolled that prayer up and stuck it down in the knot hole in the pew in front of me and started doing what? kids did i guess we were swapping knives or something like that and she announces that it's time to to that we'll now stand and have prayer and that i would lead them and we all stood and you could hear a pin drop in that church i'll never forget it and my prayer stuck and 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 i remembered that it had started out oh lord and i said oh lord oh lord i got a good one in the knot hole but i can't get it out you know I can tell you this, Miss Kitty got it out for me. I gave it in. But, but that's exactly the way my life was till I got here to Alcoholics Anonymous. I never got out of the knot hole in time. I, I, if, if you're supposed to sign a contract on Friday, I got drunk on Wednesday, you know. If a deal was coming off on Monday, I got drunk on Friday. I was always drunk at the wrong time. Now, as a, being real closely supervised, drinking was not a problem to me as a teenager. But when I got out of high school, I immediately joined the service, and that night, that day I joined the service, I had to go 55 miles away from home to be inducted into service. And I went down to Roanoke, Virginia, and that's 55 miles away from home, and that's the first time I'd ever been that far away from home without adult supervision. And that night I got drunk, and I got sick, and I almost died. Now, that was in September of 1946. Now, 27 years later, three states away, I'm still getting sick, I'm still drinking too much, and I'm still almost dying. Now, there had to be a certain amount of insanity involved for any human being, whether he be intelligent. I used to say intelligent human being, but my sponsor stopped me. He said, let's leave that out, you know. (laughs) But for any human being to go through what I went through, just to be able to follow the the bottle, there has to be a certain amount of insanity in this thing. Because you see, right from the very go, right from the get-go, I had three things that I now know, uh, or certainly two of them, that show alcoholic drinking. First of all, I had blackouts. I blacked out uh, three and four days, and those of you that are blackout drinkers know the difference between blacking out and passing out, and I would perform my duties in supposedly a normal manner and not be in any problem, and just all of a sudden I'd come to I might be on the Army base, I might be driving a truck, but I'd just come to. And uh wouldn't know where I'd been, wouldn't remember anything since Friday. And and uh this was kind of uh, eerie, you know, I, I, it was scary a little bit. And secondly, uh I had sore eyeballs. Friends, I'm telling you, I had the sorest eyeballs any mortal you ever saw in your life. 
I, I can remember coming off a drunk, and if I was laying on my back, and, the, and that candle fly had gone across there, and I'd have moved those eyeballs, it'd hurt me all the way down my hip pocket, I'm telling you. And, and I told you that night I got sick. Well, I continued to get sick for those 27 years I drank. Now, uh, when I got here, I weighed 287 pounds, and I could drink a quart a day, and I was a man's man, and I wouldn't have wanted you to know I got sick. But, truthfully, I got sick every time I drank sooner or later. Now, these three things had to be dealt with. Now, first of all, a sick drunk ain't popular. You all know that, and about the only... About the only good thing about that is you don't ever lose one of them in the dark. I can tell you that. And, and, you know, uh, I started telling my story and, and Nancy said, listen, said I cleaned enough of that stuff up. Do I have to listen to that kind of sick stuff for the rest of the time you and AA? And so, I cleaned it up for her. I developed a word. I say I unswallowed a lot. And I, and she had lived with that. Well, but now this sickness, you know, later on in life, I started wearing shoes and I got a tie and, and this kind of thing and it gets messy. And so I had to develop what I, and I developed what I called the businessman shuffle. I'd suck in and step back and spray straight down. I could, I was neat. I could hit a spot about like that. And when, when, when I got here, I literally, I could shake your hand, look you in the eye, turn my head and cough and I'd have the job done. You wouldn't even know it. Now, you know, and and I remember looking at these things, you know, and, and it worried me about this sickness. But I got to thinking, Daddy had an ulcer, and, and I had a couple of uncles with nervous stomachs. So I assumed I inherited this sickness from my daddy's side of the family. Now, Miss Kitty had a thyroid problem, and she had slightly protruding eyes. I just assumed so eyeballs come from Mama's side of the family. And, and these blackouts, nobody ever asked me if I blacked out. They didn't say they blacked out, so I just assumed if you drank, you blacked out. And, uh, so armed with this, all this knowledge, I came back from service and started out on what a normal drinking career, if I ever had one. Now, I don't know about, don't know what normal drinking is, but if I ever did any normal drinking, it was from 1948 till about 1962 or three. And we'll run through that and let y'all help me decide. I don't know. But anyway, I got back from service, and as soon as I got back, I married my childhood sweetheart. I got a good job in a textile mill that had moved into the mountains while I was gone. Got a job on the ground floor. Uh, I guess a year, about 1954, I built my first house. A year later after we got married, my son came along. Uh, I got promotions on my job. I didn't have any problems as far as I know about missing work on account of drink. Uh, I was pretty popular. I don't know whether I was popular or not, but I was a joiner. I'd join anything that had me. I was in the Elks, the Moose, the Kiwanis, the JCs. Uh, hey, I came from a dry county too, and a lot of these things let you get something to drink. I realize that now, you know. And during this period of time, I was very active in church. You know, church will always have you. And I, I was... In, 
Adam. A, uh, a, a portion of this time, a portion of this time, I superintended the Sunday schools of the largest Methodist church in Pulaski, Virginia. And, you know, but as I look back, and, and nothing seemed to be going wrong to me. I thought things were normal, but as I look back, I was in five or six automobiles that were totally lost in accidents. Now, sometimes I was driving, sometimes I was riding, sometimes we didn't know who was riding, who was driving, you know. And and didn't seem to bother us. Uh, I, uh, now, on, on Thanksgiving Day one year, I don't remember when it was, I had three accidents the same day. And... Hey, that day I hit the same man twice, and, and, uh, you know, I just didn't hit him and back up and get him over on the other side of the parking lot. I got him way over in the afternoon, about 20 miles from where I'd hit him that morning, you know, and, uh, they... You know how it is in a small town, you just deal with you, you just deal with the insurance agent. And I remember calling him and, and telling him about this second accident, and he said, Watts, how drunk are you? I said, you reported that accident this morning. I said, I ain't drunk, I've hit him again, you know, hey. Now, and, and you know, I was a, I was an unfortunate drunk. I don't, I never, I, see, I'm not handy with tools. I don't know a wrench from a screwdriver. I, I can't fix anything. I'm not a good gardener. I don't have a green thumb. Uh, if I moved into your neighborhood tomorrow, the first morning I looked out my window, yard of the week would be right across the street from me. And I couldn't even get wild onion of the month. And, and, all my life it's been, why can't you be like Tom, and why can't you be like Bill, and uh, I, my sister was real good in school, and it's, why can't you be like Elizabeth, she makes good grades, uh, she's always home at 10 o'clock, why can't you be like this, and it didn't seem to ever change, and I told you we built this house back in uh, 1954, you know, and another thing I'd done along about this time, I began to sign a certain amount of drink to any task that I didn't like to do. I don't know whether y'all did that or not, but if I was going to mow the yard, it's a case of beer. If I was going to borrow money, that took a fifth. I didn't like them bankers. It took a full quart to paint, you know. I had this one sister, and we didn't get along. I called her a two-pint sister, you know. Now, all these, we bought a, I don't know, a track of land like all the husbands did after World War II, you know, and they're, we're building these little houses out starting a new community out in the woods in the suburban area. And all the husbands, we got turnkey jobs, but they're saving money by putting in furnaces or putting in their cabinets or wiring the house or doing something, and I'm not doing anything. And... That's the first time I think I ever realized what impending doom was. She was, I could see her looking at me and I knew it was gonna, gonna be why can't you be like Rufus? Say this one guy Rufus could do anything. He was super neighbor. I mean, if, no way y'all ever, I'd love to have him there now, but back then he was a problem to me. But anyway, uh, 
it dawned on me, she'd gone up to her daddy's one day, and it dawned on me that they hadn't a husband on that whole street put their mailbox in yet. So I knew I'd get to jump on them. I'd not only put the first one in, I'd put the biggest one in, see? So, now, I don't know, I never had put a mailbox in, so I don't know how much liquor I assigned to it, but I, I'd imagine a pretty good amount. Anyway, the way I put this mailbox in is kind of interesting, I think. I went down to the plant, and, and I got the head engineer, and we took a eight foot, two and a half inch, two inches in diameter pipe, and another eight foot, inch and a half diameter, and spot welded it all the way up. I came back home, went down to Sears, got the biggest mailbox I had, put Sterling Fletcher Watts across the top of it, let it flow, put that boy down in four feet of steel reinforced concrete, and tamped it well. And, and did any of y'all ever work during the hot summer and drink all day and you just got tired and sweaty? Well, I just fell over in the bed asleep, you know. And, and I knew, I knew, I remember that Nancy's going to be proud of me when she got back and saw that mailbox. I knew that, you know. I went to sleep and about six o'clock the next morning my phone rang. And it was my neighbor. He said, what? What the hell is wrong with you yesterday? I said, what you mean? He said, you got that mailbox face in your house, son. Now... And, and it's about a hundred degrees on the 4th of July, and I'm unswallowing and got them sore eyeballs, and I got four hours to turn that thing around. And, and when I got it turned around, it looked like I'd build a swimming pool and you'd filled it back up, you know. Well, I can go on and on about this normal drinking. There's another thing. There's one other thing that had begun to happen right here that had a great influence on my life. We had developed in our household, and Joyce reminded me a little bit of it tonight, a thing that I used to refer to as a chemical muscular reaction going on. When I've been a muscle to take chemicals, her mouth flew open. And and I call this chin music. And I'm telling you, now, there's never been a man under this tent that ever liked to drink liquor any better than I did. And I never got to drink in peace. That woman knew if I slowed down the beer joint, she knew it. I'd get home and said, you almost stopped, didn't you? You know. So, and, and I just never got to drink in peace. And, and by this time I'd worked myself up in the, in the textile mill till I was buying chemicals and machinery and these salesmen had called on me, uh, they drank a lot and I noticed that they left home on Monday and they didn't go back home till Friday. And on top of that, they had free liquor on expense account. So I gave up the best job I probably ever had and started selling chemicals for one reason. And I know now that was just to drink in peace. Well, I came to South Carolina in 1962, and a little old man up there, it was a small company, a one-owner company out of Rhode Island. Never forget what he told me. Gave me a new automobile, unlimited expense account. He said, I want you to use my expense dollar to your very best ability to get my name spread around down in the south. It's not well known. Well, now, I know he meant in the textile industry where he had chemicals to sell, but I got it everywhere. I'll tell you that on the jailers, the state troopers, everybody knew that fellow's name before I threw with it anyway. Well, uh, and I was pretty 
pretty good at what I did. The first thing I did in this, uh, I took that old Ford and I bought two cases of liquor and threw it up in the trunk of the car and started running up and down the road going to all these dining and finishing plants. I was telling some of them I used to fly in. This is when I started coming to Memphis. I flew into Memphis and I called on Osceola, Arkansas, up Dyersburg, American finishing over in Memphis, but and I always had plenty of liquor, and I'd run up and down the road in that old car, and in those days they didn't have any uh, mini bottles or over-the-counter drinks, and I'd pull up in the, in the parking lot, we'd raise a trunk and take a drink, might go around to the spring, take a drink. Uh, I had a guy down to Abbeville, South Carolina, say, Watch, you called down here for 19 months, and we wasn't sure what you're sailing. said, We thought you was a liquor salesman. We wasn't sure, you know. But But things went pretty good. Uh, I had some qualities that I realize now that really helped me get to this program, but they also helped me be a good salesman. And one of them was if I could keep my alcohol level at the right, just my alcoholic content at the right level, it didn't take much sleep for me. I'd go three or four days and just shower occasionally and just keep going. I could play golf all day or fish all day or hunt all day, play cards all night, take a shower and start over the next day and, and, uh, a party man, they like this uh, when you're selling them, you're selling the men, and uh, they say things like, well, I'd rather ride a old Watts and him stone drunk, and I had Tom and him sober, and I'd just swell up and drink a pint, drive them anywhere they wanted to go. Didn't bother to me, you know. I really liked that guy. But now, along about 1969, I got the drunk driving award for the year up in North Carolina, and then... And... And then I, I got another DUI in South Carolina and Alabama and Georgia. In fact, I'm not proud of what I tell you now, but I had five DUIs for sure, and maybe the sixth one I'm not sure about. And uh I never lost my driver's license. And that shows you what kind of a con man I was and how I was able to, to lie, steal, cheat, and buy out of these things. And I know now that had I been made held accountable for my actions, they'd, I'd be telling a different story or something, but it's like... Every time I beat a rap, my alcoholic ego just went sky high. I felt like I was God. They can't stop me. I was above the law. And I'd get out of jail and go to bootleggers and get a half a pint and drink it, throw it out on the steps of the jail and just drive off or on the courthouse. I just was running rampant like that tornado they talk about. And uh I went in for an insurance examination. I told you I'd gotten real heavy, 287 pounds, and the company was about to fire me because I wouldn't go in for an insurance examination. And I assumed that it was because I didn't think I would pass it. I don't know when I got this heavy. But anyway, I went in for this insurance examination, and uh, the nurse took my blood pressure and left, and I started to roll my sleeve down and leave, and here she comes with the oxygen. I said, what's that for? Well... She said, your blood pressure's so high, you in stroke zone. I said, wait a minute. I just came in here feeling good, wanting an insurance examination. I said, if I got that kind of blood pressure, aren't there some symptoms? She said, well, said most generally you're dizzy. Well, now, I'd been dizzy for two years, and, <laughs> and, and she said it'd bother your eyes. And I'd been having a lot of trouble with my eyes, you know. And, uh. And that's the first time they, 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 we played the show and tell with their liver. Did you ever do that? They let you feel it there. And they showed me and told me how hard it was and 30% of it wasn't working. And uh, and I knew that was serious. And so I went home and and I, I was worried about that liver. I knew you didn't have but one of those boys and, and I knew it was serious. And 
but I did what he usually did. I got me a quart of vodka, and I went home to get me a plan about what I was going to do about this liver. I don't know whether y'all ever, did y'all ever do any great planning? I never did anything serious and made any serious decisions unless I was going to do some planning, get get the right plan. And I was, I was sitting there with my quart of vodka, and I was planning on what to do about this liver. And, you know, there's another thing been happening in my house. Every time I sit down, whether it be on the john or in the kitchen or in the living room or in the den, there was something laying right there about alcohol. Is, is the alcoholic in your family? Forty-four questions. Is AA for you? You know, something. Everywhere I look. And, and I've been wondering about this thing. See, I traveled a lot. I was away from home, and I wondered if the old gal had got to getting in that bottle a little bit, so I got to watching her. I never had an owner to take over two drinks. Well, I saw it wasn't her, and then I figured she had a boyfriend, and he had a problem, you know. Well, any day, anyway, this day I came home, and I got my quart of vodka, and I'm sitting there, and I'm trying to figure out, get a plan going about this liver and you remember that Reader's Digest that had that big headlines, I'm Joe's liver? Right there at Lade, you know, and that, that is just inhuman punishment. Well, about this time, somewhere along in here, all these things are fuzzy. Nancy uh, had been messing with AA, and, and to get her off my back, I called this guy called Squire, and I said, come on, I'm ready to talk, Squire. He got in his car and started to cross town. I got in my car and left town, and... And he got over to the house, and and evidently Nancy must have told I, I thought awful hard of Squire at the time. He was kind of frugal, and I guess he figured he'd spend his gas, and he'd just kind of twelve-step Nancy. Because she must have told him how bad I shook. And because this time I was shaking something fierce, you know. And all she got out of this AA call was that if I'd take K-Row syrup, orange juice, and honey, that, I, that I'd be all right. And, uh, so a ritual was, I'd come home, be about half drunk, she'd be standing there in the door, I'd open the door, and she'd be there at the tablespoonful. She'd shove three tablespoons full of this stuff down my throat, and then she'd hand me this concoction to drink. And it'd be about half full of K-Row or honey, and I'd drink it down, and I'd head back to the bathroom where I had my vodka hid, but I had mine in the clothes hamper. And by the time I got off the stuck together, I couldn't get them in my mouth, you know. You wouldn't even... It wouldn't even go in. That was the awfulest mess you ever saw. And, and, uh, now, you know, they, I know AA messes up your drinking, but I'll tell you, that doggone hunting stuff don't do much for it either. I can tell you that. No, sir. And, so, but that didn't slow Nancy down, you see. Uh, all that is doing is make me the sweetest drunk in Greenville. And so, but she found a guy, he'd gone to AA, and AA, he had a job just like mine, and AA didn't work for him either. So he came over and talked to me, and you know what he'd done? He'd gone to psychiatrist. He'd got on all well. So off I went to psychiatrist. Now, that's a whole other story. Now, I understand that if you need them and you tell them the truth, everything's fine. Well, I didn't need them. I got right here what I needed, and I never once told him the truth. You know, I had enough Miss Kitty stories going. We could have still been in there with him, you know. And 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 he'd put that little old hour, if you've never been to one, they put that little old hour glass up there and let that sand run through. And when the sand's gone, 
That's, they cut you off. Well, I was too good a con man for that. I'd watch his eyes, and when I saw the glimmer in him, I cut him off. That's all it was for that day, you know. And, and cause I knew it was a long drawn out thing, and, uh, I'd go home, and Nancy, I knew he'd call Nancy, and we'd discuss my progress and all this, you know. I got to thinking about this thing. I might have got conned here, you see. This game we was playing, he was getting $70 an hour for it, so maybe. Well, anyway, he said he had to watch me more closely, so he sent put me in the hospital. Now, we didn't have a treatment center. We didn't have detox. The only thing we had in Greenville was a place for the emotionally disturbed. And and so I went over many times to this place for the emotionally disturbed, and I'd go in there dog drunk and... uh in an ambulance sometimes, and and they put me in there. They put me in there for schizophrenia, or hypertension, or uh, uh, manic depressive. Never once put me in there for drunk. You know, I don't know why, but uh, I guess you didn't. I had all those five thousand dollar words, you know. But anyhow, now it's right interesting. I I tell you, I I like these treatment centers now that teach you a little bit about the steps. Uh, because I tell you what, I I got in a thing over there called occupational therapy. And, uh, I told you, I wasn't handy, I wasn't handy at all with tools or anything. And let me tell you, I learned to make leather watch bands. Now, pretty leather watch bands. I could make three leather watch bands in one hour. And it took everybody else the best and next best, and to me it took them three hours to make one leather watch band. So I was just turning out those leather watch bands, and I'm... Just whistling while I work. If they hadn't run out of leather, I'd still be over there. I can tell you that. And uh, and they had another thing over there. And they called it uh, group therapy. And in this group therapy of mine, there was 20 of us. 19 women and me. And 17 of these ladies had just had hysterectomies. Now... Now, if, if, if you all think an alcoholic's got troubles, you ain't heard nothing. No, sir. Now, See, you gotta appreciate, I didn't know what I was doing over there, and all of a sudden, it just, I realized what it was. You see, I'd always, see, my drinking wasn't bothering me, but it was driving Nancy insane. She was the one that was worrying to death. Well, I'd always considered myself a good provider. Did any of you know you said things like you got a roof over your head, a car to drive, a food in the refrigerator, and... And I, I was a good drunk. I want to look after my family. And I realized that I hadn't got her one of these operations. And, and, <laughs> hey, well, it, it made sense to me because, you see, if she got this operation, I was getting the message she'd have plenty to worry about and wouldn't have to worry about my drinking. Well, for the first time I realized what I was doing over there and I knew I'd learned what I was supposed to learn and I couldn't wait to get home. A warmth just came all over me, I'm telling you. And, and I couldn't wait to get home and tell Nancy the good news. 
Well, I got I got out of there and got a pint and drank it and went home and we had one of our round table discussions and you know, she wasn't willing to go to any lengths, I can tell you that right now. And I Now you know I can look back at all this and laugh now and thank God I can because I found out I had to be able to laugh at myself before I could start recovery, but I you that have been down this path know how sick I'm getting and I'm running out of things to do. You see, the way my alcoholic mind looked at this thing, I got this way in church under their supervision. You see, I never quit going to church until I couldn't go two hours without taking a drink. So I didn't see how they could help me. I had been to AA and all it did was make me the sweetest drunk in Greenville. Then I'd been to the psychiatrist, I'd been to the hospitals more than once. And Nancy said, oh, you haven't been rehabilitated. So off I went to a state uh, rehabilitation center. And I got the biggest resentment you ever saw the first day I was down there. Now, they had about 40 patients down there. And they were all wards of the state except me. They had a doctor. They had a lawyer and a couple of school teachers. They just quit their job, shut their practice up, and they was down there. The state was paying for it. Well, I still had a job. And I was costing me $600 to stay down there. And that gave me the worst resentment. I was the only one paying. And at this place, at this place, they told us, they said, now we do not push AA, but we make a place for it and you can go if you want to. They come in here every Thursday. You can go listen. You don't have to go. It's volunteer. Well, I went to listen. Now, the way my mind looked at this thing, as I, from what I heard sitting out there, is they were driving 50 miles to tell me their trouble. And I'm paying $600 because I'm sick. And, and I figured they had to be the sickest bunch of people I'd ever seen. And I'll tell you why. Let me tell you what I heard a man say. He was about 34 years old, 6 feet, 4 inches tall, strapping, good and healthy. He said he couldn't take one drunk, one drink without getting drunk. And I felt sorry for him. I'd hell. I'd be upset too if I couldn't, if I got drunk every time I took a drink, you know. So I wrote his name down. And when I got out of there, I was going to look him up and I knew I could help him correct that problem. I, I could show him how to drink more than one and if he's buying, I could show him how to drink three or four weeks maybe if he'd be careful. Well, you know. They told me an interesting thing when they discharged me. They said, go back to Greenville and don't drink and you'll be all right. And that kind of made me mad because I think I knew this after all I'd been through. I really think at that time I knew it. But anyway, I got, did any of you rather just, you know, I, I've heard the old, bucked up, straightened up my, my backbone and I went back to Greenville and I wasn't going to drink. They said not to drink and I didn't. I did just what they said. I didn't drink for five months. I didn't put another thing in my life. I didn't change another thing about what I was doing. I just took liquor out. Now, friends, you talking about miserable. I was miserable. I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that without something to help me, I can't manage my life. I learned firsthand. Now, right away, I got a glass about this big, hold about two quarts, and I filled it full of iced tea. And everywhere I went, I said, poor little old me, 43 years old and never drink again. I said things like, let's get our milk and cookies and go to bed, you know. I, I hated you. I hated you if you could drink and not get in trouble. And I hated you if you could not drink and have fun. 
I just hated the world and everybody in it. And had I not gotten drunk, I'd kill myself. I know that now. Well, I did get drunk, and this started a period of my life several months. I'm not sure how many of do it. I did what what I call zombolic drinking. I just drank like a zombie. I I literally did not know whether I was going or coming. I would wake up in the driveway and I'd look down to see how I was dressed, to see whether I was going out or coming in. I didn't know. Didn't know. And and in my and in my job, you're supposed to. I, I call on my customers once a month, and I usually take them to lunch or go by with an appointment. And I'd call and I'd say I'll be over tomorrow for lunch. They'd say, "Fool, you was over here yesterday." Uh Somebody'd call and they'd ask about a sample, and I didn't recognize who it was calling or what sample they were talking about, you know. And I'd run in this little old seventy-two-hour drying out house uh, and get right back on the street if the boss was coming. And uh, but in September of nineteen and seventy-three, I came back from Augusta, Georgia, and I guess I came home to die. It's what it, what I think I did. And I went back and what night to call my rat hole, and I don't know how long I stayed back there, but I remember coming too. And I couldn't walk, I couldn't crawl. You know that miserable feeling you have and that that clamminess you get from that drunk and that aroma that you talk about from a vodka. I had all of that and I just I couldn't even get drunk. I couldn't get a drink down. I, I couldn't I couldn't do anything. Everything had let me down. And I just dropped my head over in front of my hands and I said something like, My God, nobody knows. And Nancy was standing there and said, Yeah, AA does and we got me dressed and off I went to an AA meeting that night and uh I don't remember much went on at that AA meeting that night, but I think that's the very first time that I got a least bit honest with me and and my drinking. Now, I that night at our in our area they give out a chip. They give six chips over the year, but they give out a, a white chip the first night, and I didn't take a chip that night. And on the way home, Nancy asked me why, and I said because I can't get to bed tonight without taking a drink. I die. Now, that never bothered me before. Through all this, I'm telling you, I'd been to several AA meetings, and whoever took me and whoever was nice enough to take me and got the coffee and the cookies, when chip time came, they'd punch, I took a chip. They'd have punched six times, I took all six. I didn't care. But you see, this night I didn't take one, so somewhere in the back of my mind, I must have gotten a little bit a little bit honest with myself about my drinking and my problem. And that was on September the 23rd, 1973, and to my knowledge, I haven't had a drink since then, but I wait two days to celebrate my dry date, and I celebrated on September the 25th, 1973, because I was a sick man, and I've got another chance at a life, a life that I, I believe as I read my book demands rigorous honesty. That's the only demand it makes, and, and I'm real careful about, just for me, I want to be sure I've got a good dry date. Now that opened up a whole new, uh, kind of living for me. I never knew what's been made available to me through the fellowship of alcohol. Had this disease got together and they wrote a book about me and these guys get together and discuss it two or three times a week. If they're discussing the book they wrote about you, wouldn't you want to be there? So that's Now, when I got here, when I got here, you all said something that I heard. 
I didn't hear anything else for a long time, but you said the newcomer was the most important person that walked through that door. And with an ego like mine, that's all I needed to hear. And and when the, when any chairman was fool enough to say, has anybody got a topic tonight, they didn't have to wait on any silence. I had one. And and I had one something like, well, when you call on a prospect, do you talk to him about God? And they'd spend, you know, I never had called on a prospect, but I want them to think I had, you know. Now, they said uh, that the only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. I didn't have that desire. I had a desire not to unswallow, have sore eyeballs, I, you know, and have trouble with state troopers. I want to learn from you how not to do this. That's why I was here. And you, you told me, you said, look, get a sponsor. And I got a sponsor. Now, let me tell you, I got a sponsor. There's an old man there been sober 29 years. I knew that was a lie. And, and you know... I'm going to tell you, I knew then, I loved to lie, and I could already tell y'all was pretty sharp, and I figured if y'all would believe that, if this old man would learn how to lie to you and you'd believe him, I'd like to learn that from him, how to do that. So that's half the reason I got to be, got him to be my sponsor, and the other reason was he couldn't drive, and he'd get people to drive him places, and they looked up to him, and so they looked up to me, and I'd drive him, and we'd go out of town to speak, and and I'd watch, and I'd see who picked up a 30-day chip or a brand-new chip or a 90-day chip. And when the meeting was over, I'd go up, put my arm around them, and I'd say, Boy, you keep on coming back. This thing really works. Between me and that speaker, we got almost 30 years in this program, you know. And I'd go... I'd go ask old man a question. He'd say it's in the book. He's reading it like I told you. Wouldn't need to know. Wouldn't need to know that answer. So I just practically memorized that book. And I even went further than that. I'd get an, a question, and I'd know the page the answer was on, and I'd go ask him the question. So I hoped I could say, "Well, it's on page so and so." Thank goodness I never did catch him on that. I don't know whether I'd be here tonight or not, but but I know that that I. And, you know, after I practically memorized this book and I'd sit around and spout it off and all, he'd just shut me up. He'd say, look, young fella, said, you know, this this thing is not done by theory. You have to live it. And then that just would make me live it, you know. And so, but I went through my steps the best I knew how. And, uh, and, I, and I did it for a reason. You see, I knew, I knew that you all were serious. And I knew that it was working for you after a while. But I knew it wasn't going to work for me. I've been different all my life. So, but you'd been good to me. So I said, hey, I'm going to give it my best shot. I'm going to do everything they tell me to do exactly like they tell me to do it, when they tell me to do it, and I'll show them that it won't work for me. Now, if there's anybody out there having trouble with a conventional way of working this program, you may want to try just what I told you. Uh, you might be amazed I was what what all happened. Now the first thing you did, you said told me to listen. Well, I hadn't been listening; I'd been talking. And the first thing, you know, I I started listening around these tables, and you begin to say things that had happened to you during the week that were kindly uncanny, good things, being in the right place that you hadn't planned on being in, and something good happened to you. And people would smile and say, "Isn't that wonderful? How God works in your life?" and and I never realized, see, things had been happening to me, and I hadn't been saying anything about them because I thought you'd think I was some kind of a weirdo. Now, for instance, I can remember one night I went to, I went to a meeting that I hadn't planned on going to. 
And I'd just never been to that meeting before in my life. And that night I met a guy from Chattanooga, Tennessee, Bill B. And he was just in town visiting. He was a salesman like I. And we talked about the program and he left. But you see, I was planning this slip. I was going Saturday morning and have my car, have the tires changed on my car at Sears. And right around the corner was cold beer place. And I was going to drink beer while they changed my tires around. Went down to Sears that Saturday morning, pulled my car in there. They ran it up on the rack, and I started leaving. There stood Bill Brown from Chattanooga, Tennessee. We stood there and talked for I don't know how long. And about that time, somebody pecked me on the shoulder and said, Your car is ready. He said, Good. Mine's still being worked on. Let's go get some coffee. He spent the rest of Saturday just about with me, and I didn't get to drink. And, and I, you know, I, I would share these things, and they'd say, Well, hey, that is, that's God working in your life. And, and, and so you see, you shared your God with me until I could find some kind of a, a belief and an understanding of one of my own. And, and for that, I'll always be grateful for you. And, and you're still doing this when I have the least bit of weakness in faith. I just go to my meetings and, and sure enough, you're there sharing me your strength and the strength of your God and your faith. And, and that's how I draw on it. I see through you. And so, uh, you, you did so many things for me and I, I had started writing down, you know, I, I went to see, uh, I never had heard anything mentioned in this whole program about light beer. And I figured, hey, that's it. I never had tasted light beer, and I knew I could drink some light beer, so I decided I was going to go get this light beer, and I sat in the meeting that night. Now, through all of this, I always went to my meetings. I never quit going to my meetings, and that's why I believe so much in them today. And I was sitting there, and I had this big can of beer up over my head while the speaker speaking. and I didn't hear anything he said. And when the thing was over and I'm ready to leave, Sam picked up a white chip. And I went up to see Sam. Sam had about the same amount of sobriety I had. And he looked like he'd been run over by a Mack truck. He looked awful, both eyes black. I said, Sam, what in the world happened? He said, Wednesday a week ago, I started drinking some light beer. And now, I said, scratch plan A. I can go on and on. You can see what kind of a mixed up member I was. But my sponsor... Kindly corralled me and we went through the steps and, and after I got serious and I knew you all were serious and I found a, a little bit of belief in the God of my understanding, uh, I went through my steps and I did it to the very best of my ability. I made my amends. I, I found out mainly and I found a lot out about trust and love and, and depending on another person and honesty, but mainly I found out the most about me. I, I found out my limitations, my capabilities. I developed a yardstick, a spiritual yardstick that me and my God can measure my spiritual progress by. I know what can be expected out of me today and what don't have to be expected out of me. I learned that I no longer have to be the fastest, the meanest, the wildest, the craziest. I can just be me and you'll accept me. And as long as I do with today the very best I can with what God gave me to work with, that's all I have to do. And I'll be okay. And, uh, but as I, after I'd been sober about six years, I noticed that some people had what I didn't, I didn't seem to have. And, and I hit this lull and I don't know what I'm going to do about it. And, and I, I, you know what I mean? The people just had it and I didn't seem to have it. And, and I talked to my sponsor and he said, well, let's get back in the book and see what we can find. You know, I used to make fun of you for reading the same thing over and over and over at all these meetings. 
And then I found out why, because I only hear what I'm supposed to hear when God's ready for me to hear it. Six years, six years sober, I heard for the first time God could and would if he were soft. Not that I had to find him in the bush. And, and I also, I read another thing this time when I got back in the book. I read there where it said that, that, uh, after you work the nine steps, you've entered the world of the spirit, the realm of the spirit. And I'd never really, I'd never really done, entered the world of the spirit. And so, I got back in my book some more, and I began to see things I hadn't seen. I, I found over in the chapter to the agnostic where God is or he isn't. He's all or nothing. And and I'd been given half measures. I'd have said, I, you know, I turned my alcoholism and a few other big things over to him. But I was handling everything else on a regular basis. I realized I'd skipped over step seven. I, I'd taken it too lightly. I hadn't really gotten humble with God. I hadn't said, God, just strip myself off neck and said, God, I can't handle anything. I need your help in all facets of my life. And I went back and did that, and, and it was amazing. I was able to go back and make further amends and redo the amends. I found out that I had actually been creating resentments while I was trying to make amends. I realized I had been lying while I was making amends. And I found out that I love to lie better than anything in the world. And, and I still do. That's one of the old things I hung on to that I love so much is lying. And, and, and I hated to give it up, but, but I had made amends and I had said, uh, for instance, when my mother died, I was drunk and I'd gone back to Virginia and I'd apologize to those people and I said, I'm an alcoholic and I found that out now and I want to come back and make things right and tell you that I, if I harmed you in any way, I'm, I didn't mean to. It was because I was drunk. And I realized that wasn't so after I really took a long look. I had got drunk to go do that. I wanted to tell those people off. And I found out a lot of that was going on. And I only found this out when I really got back and, and I, I was able to get humble in that seventh step. And, you know, it says another interesting thing over there in that, in that, uh, uh, chapter to the agnostic. It says that he would reveal himself to us. When we drew near to him, he would reveal himself to us. And you know, as I try to get near to him, I can't think of any place that's more near to a God of my understanding than here in an AA meeting. You see, we're all here seeking a God of our understanding. We're trying to practice step 11. So I feel like that if I'm going to get closer to him, there's no place I'd rather be than an AA meeting. And you are the people that I get God's messages through. I've never had a direct line to a God of my understanding, but I get his message through you people. So when I come to an AA meeting, all I'm doing is checking in to get my messages. And, and hey, there's nothing, there's nothing like that. And, you know, life today is so much better because uh, of this fellowship and Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I had, back in 1973, when I, I came, got sober, I have found out that in this zombolic drinking that I had done, that I had talked to, in a semi-blackout or whatever, I had talked a Ph.D. of chemistry into giving up his job and coming to South Carolina and going into business. And I, when I sobered up, after I got sober, he knocked on my door one Saturday morning, and he's down there with his family, and I got to looking into it, and I'd signed the papers to borrow more money than I ever knew anything about and all the rest of it. And I got to quit to want a, a good job and get in this chemical business, and it was tough. And and I tell you this to, to lead up to what happened. In 1974, this business was just about to go under, and I'm traveling, and I could call in, and at any time it would go bankrupt. And I had just, God saw fit to give me the, my first newcomer. And I was taking his hand and walking with him through the steps, 
And you know, I realized one day that I'd call in and I, I was not interested in how the business, if they'd have said it's going to go bankrupt, I'd have said fine. But is Sam sober? And I realized that some of the promises were coming true in my life. That I, I was, uh, gaining interest in my fellows and losing interest in myself and, and I, my priorities had changed around. And you see, God put this newcomer in my life just at the very, the very time that I needed him. And this has been, as I try to keep myself, just make a simple attempt to do the things that I'm supposed to do in these steps, things always get better. I find out if I can take care of my spiritual life, everything else falls into line. If I'm supposed to have something material, I get it. And I feel like everything that I've got today materially is not mine anyway. I got it just because God let me keep it. And, and it's not mine. If he wants to go, it'll go. So I don't really put any put any big deal on material things. If I got them, fine. But what you people have given me is a peace down inside that no human can take away from me. And that's that's a, a real comfortable feeling. That's what I can lay down with at night and sleep. That's something you can really count on. It's not something you can take to the bank with you, but I'd rather have something I can take to my grave with me that's making me happy than something I can put in the bank today. Now, I've had more trauma since I've been sober probably than I ever did when I was drinking. Uh, I lost my only sister, and uh, and then about a year later, I lost my Al-Anon, my wife of 35 years, my Al-Anon of 10 years, and four months later, I lost my sponsor of 10 years. And this is, I was a, I was a guy that didn't deal with death very well anyway, and I was capable of getting mad at God. But thank goodness for the people that had gotten here first. I don't like to call them old timers. I like to call them early birds. They got here before I did. And, and, and that's what my sponsor said. Don't call us old timers. Call us early birds. And I thank God for the early birds. I watched them. They showed me what to do. They showed me that when trauma came in their lives, they doubled up on their meetings. They got their strength from Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what I did. I, you taught me to say, God, what lesson am I supposed to learn for these things that you're putting in my life? And I, I learned lessons. I found out that he doesn't shut a door, that he doesn't open another one. You see, after about a year, I met a, a lovely lady in the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we were married. And so God's been good to this old drunk. I had 10 years of an Al-Anon AA marriage, and I've had uh, two years, three years now of a of an AA, uh, AA marriage. And uh, Donna is sorry she can't be with you tonight. She had an infected ear and couldn't fly. But she wanted to come and, and, uh, but we have a good marriage and, and it's necessary. She has her program and I have my program and it, we've got to be free to let each other grow. And we're developing a program together and that, that's what's so great about it. And, and we pray together and we start our day off right. And, and so, uh, things have turned out pretty good because I kept myself spiritually fit. Any, incidentally, Don and I do a little something you may, you may do it, you may not do it, but either whether it's an Al-Anon alcoholic marriage or whatever, when we when we start to get angry and we raise our voice and we go to fuss a little bit, we just stop and we say, I'm Sterling, I'm an alcoholic, or I'm Donna, I'm an alcoholic. And that reminds us who we are. And you know, we think we're at a meeting. You know how you smile at a meeting, don't you? So it, it it's working for us. It's not, it, it, it keeps the tension down and... Uh, but and and you see my sponsor, uh, I 
God didn't take him till I was ready for him to go. And you know, I was down in Albany, Georgia speaking and it dawned on me at the, at the podium. I'd been, I couldn't understand. I felt like just me that I'd grown real spiritual, uh, more spiritually in the last year than I had any other time in my sobriety. And I didn't know why. And it dawned on me that after Jim died, I had to go to praying. You see, now I, I got up in the morning and I asked him to help me through the day and at 11 o'clock at night, I thanked him. But from everything from 7 in the morning to 11 at night, I let Jim take care of it, you see. He was closer to him anyway. It made sense to me. And so I just let Jim take a slack up. He worked day shift and I slept night shift. Well, now that Jim's gone, I had to hit my knees and, and it helped me a whole lot. And, and I find myself praying all day long now. And I realize that's what Jim was doing. But see, it got me closer to a God of my understanding. And, uh, this son I told you, he's got, uh, he has two children and, uh, I wouldn't be able to enjoy these children uh, or love them. It's a little boy and a little girl. A little boy's about nine years old. A little girl's about eight years old. The other day I went over to see him and a little girl next door came out and pulled on my coattail. She said, are you Austin's granddaddy? So I don't know, you know, but I'm, I'm, I'm real thankful that I don't, uh, you know, I got a horror now. Donna started speaking in AA, and then every once in a while they're asking me now if I'm Donna's husband too. So, but but I know that I that that I don't have to be anything but what I am, and that's an alcoholic. And I have to to become an alcoholic the first thing every morning, and after that I can be anything I want to be all day long. Uh, I can be an alcoholic husband, an alcoholic golfer, uh, as long as I'm an alcoholic first, and that's important to me. Uh, this company that we started back in 73 is still around. We're thinking about renaming it and call it Red Cross because most of the time it's non-profit. But that, that's, that's not as important to me now as it was one time because, as I say, you all have taught me, I, I have everything I need, and I know without a shadow of a doubt I'm always going to get it. And it just doesn't take as much uh maturely for me as it used to. I just don't put that much value on it. It has been a good life. It's a great way of life. I thank God for all these new friends I've met over here in Arkansas. Uh, thank you a million for allowing me to come down and share with you. I'd like to leave you with four Ps if I might. Please go to your meetings. I might be in Indiana or Wisconsin or West Virginia or wherever you're from and I might need a meeting and if you're not there I hate to think I wouldn't get my message, you see, and so please go to your meetings, and please keep unity in your group. You know, that first tradition tells me that my personal sobriety depends upon AA unity. So if you're fussing at the GSR and raising cane with the chairman and kicking this kind of stuff around with the DCM, something might get, so kind of keep unity for me, if no other reason. And please keep on loving me and letting me love you because this AA love is the greatest thing I've ever found. And please keep on sharing with me and letting me share with you. Thank you.